Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Good morning, Gary. Trust you're well. Hey, Mike. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we have the second show in a row, Gary, where we interview someone who has a job of our dreams. Oh, I know it. We talked oh. to the lead communicator of the Yes Network, Eric Handler. Yes, if, for those that aren't in the know, is an acronym that stands for Yankee Entertainment and Sports Network. They're the regional broadcast network that covers our beloved New York Yankees, as well as the Brooklyn Nets of the NBA, the New York Liberty of the WNBA, and the New York City Football Club of uh, Major League Soccer. But before we do that, let's go to communication in the news. Okay. First of all, an update that you've got to be happy with as uh, well, a big fan of the boss. Yeah. Uh, Jeep has reinstated its Super Bowl ad starring Bruce Springsteen. Apparently, the charges were dropped due to a lack of evidence this past week. So Jeep announced it was unpausing <laughs> its work. ad, saying it had initially paused the commercial until the facts were established. So that's good news for your era. Yeah, I know. Well, listen, I, I had faith in Bruce all along. And, you know, it's always good when your heroes win. You know, my previously was Lance Armstrong, you know, the great oh, yeah, the cyclist. And, and that one went down the tubes, you know, really fast. And so I'm glad that we still have Bruce. You know, I once heard somebody who was, I won't say the name, who was a really successful person. And somehow I brought up the name Bruce Springsteen, Mike. And this person I was talking to had everything in the world. And this person said, you know, he's the only person I would trade lives with. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I don't say that. I don't want my wife to hear me saying that, but uh, I am a big fan. Yeah. These days, one, one job people may not change places for as easily is, is kind of our profession. Two major holding companies recently, Interpublic, who owns Weber Shandwick, Golan, and some others, Omnicom, which owns Ketchum, Fleischmann Hillard, and Porter Novelli, they announced declines in year-over-year -year revenues, and as a consequence, announced that they'll be cutting staff. Interpublic is cutting its headcount by some 4,100, or about 7.5% wow. of its jobs, and Omnicom cut 5,900 jobs, or more than 8%, of its employees. And, and there were cuts at mid-year. You know, WPP had announced, I think, after the, its second quarter, they were going to cut about 5,000 jobs. And then in December, the Japanese communications holding company, Dentsu, also announced job cuts. So what we're seeing is apparently challenges as a result of COVID-19. Now, there is an interesting phenomenon in all this data, too which is a lot of these holding companies, a lot of the agencies seem to be holding on to their larger customers, mm -hmm. but it's kind of that next tier, that next level or yeah. next levels that are peeling off and people are dis discontinuing buys and campaigns. How does this bode for agencies and holding companies going forward? And for that matter, the entire public relations industry. 
Yeah, well, a couple reactions, Mike. I would say, number one, if I were an in-house head of communications, there's a lot of good talent out in the marketplace. Absolutely. Right? So I'd be, I'd be taking a look at that because, you know, there's just so much talent in these agencies, creative particularly. I agree with and you. And then secondly, it's hard for me to understand this, Mike. So maybe I'm going to throw this back mm-hmm. at you. Yeah. We've heard so much about the expanded role of in-house communicators, particularly during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. increasing demands and a broadening of the lens and the job scope. Mm-hmm. So what do you think's going on here? I mean, listen, I know I, I know there's probably spending cuts in, in a lot of these mid-size and small-size firms, but at the same time, the expectations for these communications teams are rising. So so how do you think, what do you think's going on here? Yeah, I think it's a big squeeze, quite frankly. And yeah. I think it's related to the fact that large companies, medium-sized companies, not just agencies, but their clients don't quite know how to predict the future. Yeah. And they don't know when the economy is going to come roaring back. You know, there, there was a point sort of in the late spring where everybody thought, well, we're going to be back to normal. Yeah. You know, sometime into the summer, early fall. And some people started to come back to the workplace, and, you know, 20, 30% of workforce. And then, of course, numbers spiked during the holidays. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we still, you know, while there was the hope that there would be vaccines, it wasn't going to roll out until after the first of the year. So I think it's, it, it's that uncertainty. Yeah. Now, some companies that spend a lot of money on advertising and have, have consumer brands, I think some of them have thought, well, this is a good time to stay in there and to see how we grow this brand going forward. And and maybe we can even shop to find some good deals in terms of of buys. And so we've seen interesting plays, I think, by some of these companies online, not as much in, in traditional advertising. Yeah, interesting. You know, if I were in one of these big agencies, the holding companies, the bet I would make right now is on specialization in change management, yep. cult, internal communications, culture, because I, I, I do think there is significant opportunity there for-, for I agree with you. Yep. Absolutely. So when I grew up uh, changing topics here <laughs> to toys, we had less sophisticated toys than the kids man, today. Man. We didn't have computer games, nor games to play on phones. You know, we had things like baseballs and mitts, yep. basketballs, board games, pickup sticks, and Mr. Potato Head. Yes. Which was somewhat resurrected by its cameo appearances, you know, in various Toy Story oh, animated about films. That, yeah. But Hasbro created a stir around Mr. Potato Head when it said it would drop the Mr. from the brand's name in order to be more inclusive. This abs- absolutely lit up all the social social media channels. Right-wingers online went absolutely berserk and crazy over the idea of a gender-neutral potato head. And then later... Hasbro clarified its position via a tweet saying, hold that tot. Your main spud, Mr. Potato Head, (laughs) isn't going anywhere. It went on to say that the branding on the box is what's changing. Uh, It'll just say Potato Head, but that Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head characters will still exist. Gary, what should we make of all of this? Is this the case of a half-baked idea being undone? Or is this MASH symptomatic 
of our deep political divide. Mike, I'm just getting a little nauseous here from the punk. But, <laughs> but look, I, I just think, I, I did see one, Mike, that was pretty good, a tweet where when they announced this and somebody responded that maybe has bro should change its name too, right? Drop the bro. <laughs> so anyway, I, I just, boy, I, look, I, I'm respectful of everybody's point of view, but this seems like an unnecessary distinction. Yeah. There is a Mrs. Potato Head, by the way, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So at a minimum, look, I, I, at a minimum, they should have been more clear up front about what they were actually doing, because it did, the perception was that they were getting rid of Mr. Potato Head. And so it seems like they were a little, I'm going to say, ham-handed. <laughs> um, up front, but I, I I think this is where you know it's might be a little bit self-inflicted. And the, Mr. Potato Head, by the way, was one of my favorite toys as a kid. I I, I I used to do it with a real potato. Yeah, <laughs> things you, know, you were so poor. Do a real potato. Now they give you some plastic. Thing. I don't know. I feel like I'm treading on on dangerous ice here. What's your what's your? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having fun. Yeah, uh, you know. Like, it, Thanks for putting me out there, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) So we're now 40 days into the new administration. We've had Jen Psaki as the White House press secretary. Keep in mind that the Trump White House at one point went 417 days without a press briefing. That included the complete nine-month tenure of press secretary Stephanie Grisham. But on her watch, Jen Psaki has already overseen more than 30 press briefings Mm -hmm. in 40 days. She's appeared on National Public Affairs show. There was a little bit of a hiccup when Deputy Press Secretary T.J. Ducklow threatened a Politico reporter who was delving in to his own personal relationship with a female reporter at Axios. It was reported that in trying to suppress the story, Ducklow yelled at the reporter, telling her, I will destroy you. So Jen Psaki suspended Ducklow for a week without pay and said that Ducklow's behavior was completely unacceptable. And he resigned from his post this past week. So despite this hiccup, how's Jen Psaki doing? Any key differences from past White House press secretaries? What grade would you give her 40 days in? Yeah, you know, I look, I'm just going to jump backwards over the Trump administration, just because it wasn't, there wasn't really press secretaries in the sense that you and I know them, you having been one and and me as well, I'd give her high marks. Not that I, and that's not a political statement. Mm -hmm. It's, It's about the need to have the fourth estate be a, you know, overseer of what's going on in our country. And they only do that through access, through the ability to challenge leaders, to push. And and that's what a free press does. And so I'm really impressed. I just watched Jen yesterday on one of the Sunday morning shows. CNN, maybe. Yeah, CNN, I think, State of the Union, and very composed, answering questions. You know, they've got some tough things to answer for the relationship with Saudi Arabia, so the media hasn't been, hasn't, there's been a bit of a honeymoon, but the media is beginning to have some issues it could sink its teeth in. I like the daily briefings. I like her being accessible. And I like the res- uh, restoration of some traditions, like having the Associated Press asking the first question, you know, the wire yeah, service. Yeah, yeah. All of that sends a message that journalism matters, that it's yeah. real, and it's an important part of a democracy. 
Yeah, I think she's raised the level of professionalism. I think that she's she's also very adroit under pressure. Yeah. There are times she doesn't want to an- answer a question and, you know, it's an I'll get back to you or, or well, that's what the president said or, yeah. you know, or some other dance. I don't think that ever changes. Yeah. But I do think that she's she's making a best effort to answer questions and to engage and to respect the fourth estate, as you said. So yeah. so I would give I would give her like an A minus out of the game. Yeah, I, I'm there. I forgot to give an A. And and by the way, Mike, I just want to say it looks easy. These podium uh-huh. jo- these podium jobs, as you know, they are so hard, whether it's at the White House or state. You can't events. you can't possibly remember every detail. Exactly. And, you know, just even your physical presence and mm-hmm. whether you roll your eyes and everything today is analyzed. Yeah. These okay. jobs are just really Yeah, to be cool as a cucumber. Yeah. Yeah. So the the last piece before we go to our our guest is kind of the the world of apology. We've had a number of public figures recently find themselves in positions of controversy where they had opportunities to apologize, and each did it in their own way. I'm going to run through three of these, Gary, and I would love your take on whether what they did worked or Mm -hmm. not, and then get your reflections on, you know, what constitutes a good company or public figure uh, apology. First of all, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Mm -hmm. I won't get into his latest controversy relating charges of sexual harassment that's coming from a couple of uh, former female employees. But not too long ago, Andrew Cuomo was like the poster child of heroism in managing the pandemic. Right. He even published a book in the middle of all of this in October titled American Crisis leadership lessons for the COVID-19 pandemic. Now it turns out that his administration had been purposely under-reporting pandemic-related fatalities in nursing homes because of political implications. Initially, the governor denied it. Then he later said it was bad staff work and admitted that his administration had withheld some nursing home data. And then Assemblyman Ron Kim, a Democrat from Queens, whose district has been hard hit by the coronavirus, said it appeared the governor was trying to dodge having any incriminating Mm -hmm. evidence. Hours later, the assemblyman got one of these late night phone calls from the governor, allegedly threatening to tarnish the assemblyman's reputation if he did not recant his remarks. So that's the first one. The second one, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, (laughs) Republican senator from Texas, as snow and ice storms in Texas left millions without power, the senator went with his family to Cancun. After his trip got noticed and panned in the media, he took a plane back to Texas explaining, this is a direct quote, with school canceled for the week, our girls asked to take a trip with friends, wanting to be a good dad, I flew down there Mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. Right. In short, The senator blamed his two daughters for being politically tone deaf. Then to add insult to injury, this past week, as people are still struggling with issues with dealing with their houses as a result of these storms, he shows up at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Florida, where he says, I got to say, Orlando is awesome. It's not as nice as Cancun, but it's nice. Yeah, wow. And then finally, the Seattle Mariners, the the Major League Baseball team, their president, Kevin Mather, 
recently was caught on a videotape where he had given remarks to a local Rotary Club where he criticized current and former baseball players around their ability to speak English. Right. In those remarks, he named a bright prospect from the Dominican Republic and said he's loud, his English is not tremendous. He also said of a Japanese pitcher, wonderful human being, but his English was terrible. The Seattle Mariners president resigned Monday, one day after apologizing for his eye-raising remarks, saying, I want to apologize to every member of the Seattle Mariners organization, especially our players and to our fans. There is no excuse for my behavior, and I take full responsibility for my terrible lapse in judgment. Gary, what do you think each of these men did? And what are the right ways and wrong ways for public figures and companies to apologize? Well, you know, Mike, this is something in my crisis class at Boston University, we spend time on. Yeah. It's how to, how to apologize and how not to apologize, uh -huh. since uh, a lot of individuals and companies are in need of doing that these days. Look, the first two, the politicians, Cuomo and Cruz, it couldn't be worse. Right. And, and thanks for reminding me. I can bring this up when I get to the apologies, you know, part of my <laughs> syllabus. <laughs> These are good examples. And, you know, it's, it's bad when your apology reinforces the negative perceptions of who yeah. you are. And, and yeah. Cuomo, bully, and Cruz, you know, just not a good person. Mm -hmm. Their apologies reinforce the worst in them, mm -hmm. not the best. You know, yeah. Cruz blaming things on his daughter. And in both cases, they changed their story several times during the mm -hmm. apologies, mm -hmm. which is exactly the wrong way to apologize. And then- You don't want to look like you're dissembling. Right, exactly. And, and clearly it cuts through the authenticity that is essential to-, to Oh, for them, maybe they, they were being authentic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so look, I, and with this guy from the Mariners, it sounds to me like he really regretted yep. saying what he said. Yeah, And I, I don't know the context, but the apology in itself, just from the statement, seems heartfelt, seems he, he, he does the right things in apologize, not doing a fake apology, Mike, like, mm -hmm. I'm sorry if I offended someone. That's a fake right. apology, right? You know, that's right. a deflection. Right. I'm sorry that you felt bad when you heard me, but, you know, apologizing directly to the people on his team and the organization, the players, the fans. So I take that as quite authentic and keep them short yep. is always something that I would recommend and be heartfelt about it and, and real and, yeah. and get, get rid of the corporate language, make it personal. Yeah, and I think as painful as, as as I'm sure it was for him personally to quit his job over yeah, this. Great job. I think that particularly in the sports world, particularly, you know, post George Floyd, there's there's gonna be a greater heightened sensitivity around issues that deal with everything from language to race to ethnicity. And he probably did the right thing by his organization. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Whereas Cruz and, and Cuomo, of course, are hanging on. In, mm -hmm. in the case of Cuomo, we'll see for how long as he has a number of things swirling around him. Mm -hmm. Well, great. We've got a great guest. Let's yes. get on with it. it well, there's nothing wrong with talking about baseball, Mike. So Never. Uh, let's do it.
guest today on this episode of The Crux is Eric Handler, the Vice President of Communications at the Yes Network. And we'll talk in a minute about what that is. We're going to talk with Eric about what it's like to lead a communications team, which he'll define in the most competitive sports market in the world, New York City, and how COVID has changed his job over the last year. More specifically, Mike and I want to know what it's like to work for a network that covers the Yankees. And more importantly, has Eric ever met Derek Jeter? Eric, welcome to the crux. Thank, thank you very much for having me, Gary and Mike. I appreciate you having me on board and, and for giving me this opportunity. And believe it or not, I met Derek Jeter before he was Derek Jeter. Is that right? I was, I think it was 2000 and I was 1995 oh. and I was working at ESPN at the time. Actually it was 1996. The Yankees had just won the World Series. Yeah. His first full year. And ESPN was launching ESPN News at the time, the 24-hour all-sports yeah. news station. And I was in Bristol helping out with communications. And one of my jobs over the course of the night was to usher Derek Jeter in particular through the ESPN car wash as it existed at that time. <laughs> I remember holding, you know, figuratively holding Derek Jeter's hands and taking him from this interview to that interview to this interview. I, I remember that night very vividly. So I can always say I knew Derek Jeter when. There you <laughs> go. Mike, this is where we screwed up, right? I, you know, hey. our careers. We should have, you know, we're, we're dealing with CEOs and other things, you know, and, and uh, we should have been dealing with Yankees. I'm, I'm convinced. So listen, Eric, tell, tell us, we, we have listeners all over the States and, and around the world, really. Tell us about the Yes Network, its programming, the teams it covers, your ownership as a sort of a starter here. Sure. Well, the, the Yes Network is what is considered a regional sports network. And by that, it's different from, say, ESPN or Fox Sports or CBS Sports in that its, it's footprint, so to speak, is regional. And in our case, the footprint covers four states, New York State, New Jersey, parts of New Jersey, parts of Pennsylvania, and then Connecticut. And so we have the ability to transmit our signal and transmit live games to those four states. Okay. We, we have the exclusive regional television rights to four professional sports teams. The Yankees, obviously, who are part owners, the Brooklyn Nets, New York City Football Club of MLS, and then New York Liberty of the WNBA. We also have a lot of shoulder programming, interview shows, documentaries, et cetera, et cetera. Right. We have, office, we have offices in Manhattan and in Stamford, Connecticut. Our studios are in Stamford, Connecticut, and our executive offices are in Manhattan. From an ownership standpoint, as I mentioned, we have the Yankees, we have Sinclair Broadcast Group, we have okay. Amazon, and then we have several private equity investors. Oh, terrific. Have you always worked in sports, Eric? Is You were at ESPN, um, I, sports communication? Either sports and or media. But okay. yes, I would say 95% of my career has been, has, uh, been spent in sports. It started Back in the dark ages, 1987, I was at Yonkers Raceway, <laughs> and then yeah. I was at Madison Square Garden Boxing. Oh, sure. So, speaking of reputation management, two sports that needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was with a a, a, P, a small PR firm that isn't around anymore, but did a lot of pay-per-view boxing, you know, cable work, et cetera, et cetera. And then I went to ESPN. I had a six-year stint at ESPN and Disney. First two years, I was in corporate communications at ESPN. The next two years, I was the first full-time PR person for ESPN.com. 
Okay. Which at the time was called ESPN Net Sports Zone. And then my last two years, I was with a separately traded company called Walt Disney Internet Group, which was all of Disney's, you know, dot com elements. And there I handled publicity for ESPN.com, a lot of corporate work for Walt Disney Internet Group, and then also ABCnews.com. Okay. And then I had a very, very brief cup of coffee with the U.S. Tennis Association, the U.S. Open. Okay. And then I had two and a half years at CSTV, College Sports Television, which is now CBS Sports Network. Okay. Helped launch that. And I've been at Yes now for this will be my 16th year. Wow. So you've really seen the emergence of sports television in its modern form from the inside, you know, with the regional networks, with the the obviously internet properties. So you've got a great view. So I want to focus because it's the sort of foundation for the rest of our conversation about how you work at Yes on a day-to-day basis and tell us about, and I'm doing air quotes right now, your team, Eric, and is the primary goal of what you do on a day-to-day basis to drive ratings? Is that sort of how you think about it? Sure. My, my team, just to be clear, is me, myself, and I. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I am blessed with having had some, some wonderful interns, including one of your colleagues, Chris, Chris, Chris Caddick. All right. Um, who, who I would my, put. Chris, just for listeners, Chris is my GA, graduate assistant this semester and our producer here. So this is like a reunion for these two guys. Old homie. Yeah. <laughs> and as, as, as Chris will tell you, I rely very, very heavily on my interns. Okay. okay? So it, it's very important that I find somebody with not only the, the, the right aptitude, but who's going to provide, help provide the right chemistry as well. And yes, the primary goal or a primary, primary goal is to drive tune in. Okay. okay. The more people we get to watch, the better our ratings, the better our ratings, the better our ad sales efforts, which helps our bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. So it's tune in. And then, you know, in general, it's, it's like any other business entity, it's your know, reputation management. It's you know, managing and burnishing and protecting, you know, the image of the company and all the assets. So it's the network, the executives, the talent, all the content that's on our linear network, the yes network, right. as well as digital. So I, I drive the train with all those aspects. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, yes, is a, is a regional sports network with regional distribution, but we consider ourselves, and I'm always trying to position yes as a standard bearer among regional sports networks and also one of the most ambitious and aggressive media companies, period, in the country, whether it's regional or network. And we have a saying at Yes that we are regional in name only. And what that means is the way we interpret it is Yes, granted Yes can only transmit its live games within a four state footprint, but the way we operate, the way we conduct business, we like to consider ourselves on par with the national networks, with the Fox Sports, the CBS Sports, NBC Sports. ESPN and so forth. We have very high standards from a business standpoint, from a, a production and programming standpoint, and from a from a communication standpoint. So, you know, we've we've set very high standards for ourselves, and that's that's how we position ourselves internally and externally. So, Eric, first, thanks for for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. But talking tune in, the coronavirus has to have thrown you a real curveball over the last year. Can you give us a brief walkthrough on how things went down, you know, through spring training at last year and the NBA season? How did that change the game for you guys? 
Well, I can give you a walkthrough. I, I can't guarantee it's going to be brief. <laughs> but believe it or not, a lot of the company, a lot of my colleagues and I were in Tampa at spring training that fateful week in March. Mm-hmm. We were down there. We had production meetings. We were taping a promo campaign. You know, I was meeting with some media, et cetera, et cetera. And we also had a team dinner to sort of kick off spring training and the in the 2020 you know, Yankees on Yes campaign. And if you remember the specific days, Wednesday the 11th, I believe that was the evening when the NBA shut down. Right. And we happened to have a team dinner earlier that evening. And believe it or not, the news had already been, there's, ar- there's already scuttlebutt, not so much about canceling the season, but about business being dramatically altered. The way the way we conduct conduct business. And I remember somebody at our at our at one of the meetings actually using the word pandemic for the first time. And this was Wednesday, March 11th. And I, I, I had to look it up in a, dic- in a dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what, what pandemic meant. So that was Wednesday, the 11th. We come home from, we had a team dinner that evening. We come home, I'm in the hotel room and I'm watching the NBA and I'm also got my, you know, just on Twitter doing work and everything. And all of a sudden I see news about the, the one NBA game being shut down, you know, just moments before tip off. And then the NBA just shutting down in its entirety. And then the next day, Thursday the 12th, we had meetings and we really spent most of the time, we sort of scrapped our original agenda and spent most of the time talking about, you know, what our plan is going to be, how we're going to, you know, conduct business, how we're going to televise games, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, flew home Thursday night. I was lucky to get out of Tampa to get back to New York Thursday night, the 12th. And then, you know, I I didn't go back to the office until, until whenever. And our offices our offices are still still closed in Manhattan and in, in Stanford. We have a skeletal skeletal crew. Only the people that are needed to put together our our shows are there. And of course, we're we're taking every necessary precaution to make sure they're safe and everything. But you know, we you know, it was very interesting to be in the eye of the storm, so to speak, and that we were down in Tampa just as everything was happening. And you know, you you threw all plans to the wind and you just you're immediately started starting to talk about contingency plans and what are we going to do and everything. And yeah, I remember flying home, I saw a woman with a mask on her face. Oh. And I was like, boy, is that little it's a little over overzealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember having, you know, meeting with a reporter that Wednesday afternoon in Tampa at the at the Yankee Spring training complex and and we were we were chatting and you know, we, we may have spent like 30 seconds talking about the virus, but that was it. Yeah. And, and then you know, literally within, you know, with every passing hour, the landscape changed, you know, dramatically. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, yeah. it's, it's remarkable when you look back. In fact, Gary and I did a show in January where we talked about the medical professional in China, you know, who was trying to get the news out, but we had no idea that, you know, this, this thing was coming across to the United States ultimately and to the rest of the world. So how did that change how you think about promotion? How did that change in terms of, you know, what, what you did in terms of, I mean, did audience size change at all in the mix as you're working through all of this? I mean, it had to be crazy. I mean, so you probably had, you know, challenges or targets in place for have an audience of yay size for the NBA with the Nets and the Nets, you know, are, are you know, are, are like a big comeback team with the new crew of players that they have and then the Yankees. So, so what was that like in terms of 
looking at what your your business target was and how did that change? It, it like I said, everything pretty much was thrown out the window. Yeah. And you talk about ratings. The nets were nets were doing better than expected mm-hmm. without Kevin Durant heading to the postseason. Yankees obviously every spring there's there's this you know tremendous sense of optimism and hope because the Yankees are always you know title contenders. Right. And then all of a sudden that just all that stuff just disappeared. And we talked about ratings and tune in. People tune in to the S network to watch live Yankee games, Nets games, NYCFC, New York Liberty, and those were no longer on our air. So obviously our our audience just just tanked. And you know, on one hand, we we knew what was happening in terms of the pandemic, and we knew that it was a very serious medical and cultural shift that was taking place and that were you know uncharted waters it's it, the pandemic it is deadly it's you know early on not so much early on but as we went on you saw that the pandemic affected everyone uh, whether it's from a personal medical emotional or financial standpoint but at the same time you, we sort of had to strike a balance because we had a business to run right okay and we have responsibility to our various various audiences fans advertisers distributors team partners and so forth. So we, it was a very, and this is not just yes, but any, any business entity, you had to, you had to walk a, a tightrope and you had to strike a balance. You had to, you had to, you know, take care of your, your employee safety first and foremost. Sure. And we were very, very sensitive to that, obviously. And you knew what was happening in your community. You could see it on the news, you know, on the radio, online, you knew the, the devastating effect it was having having on our community, yet we still had a business to run. Okay. And that's that's uncharted territory for anybody. Mm-hmm. So we sort of put together a strategy, a game plan that emphasized that even though we don't have games, you know, we are still a community of sports fans. We're a community of Yankees fans, Nets fans, NYCFC, Liberty. Okay. Maintaining media relationships, my particular world is and was, you know, very, very critical back then. It was just taking on this heightened sense of sensitivity, I would say, just to, just to, you know, ensure that we were striking the right tone. But I obviously, in my role, had a, had a very heavy role to play in that regard. So it was, it was, and it was also all hands on deck. I mean, I, I think once the pandemic hit and once we were all at home, job descriptions sort sort of went out the window. Yeah. Okay. And by that, I mean, I found myself getting more involved in production and programming and digital and HR and employee communications and so forth. Not that I was driving the train, but I was chiming in where otherwise would not chime in. And it wasn't just, just I at the Yes Network. It was everyone at the company. We all chipped in. The landscape shifted. So our job descriptions shifted. Okay. The lines of responsibility were blurred. People are working from home. People don't have you know, the equipment they normally would have in front of them. The studio shut down. It was you know literally all hands on deck, and it still is to a degree all hands on deck. And everybody contributed, and everybody is you know still contributing. We heard that Eric from other communicators, industrial companies, financial companies, tech, that the communicator's job changed because of the pandemic, whether it was to deal with employee issues related to work from home or health issues and that kind of thing. So it seems like you experienced the same thing where 
the lens on on your normal day to day grew, and you're you're putting your hand in or your brain in wherever you can help. Amazing. So, by the way, you know, during this period when there were no more Yankee games to watch, I I know ESPN. Well, I can still remember one day. I think they brought the Ocho back. Um, ESPN, <laughs> the Ocho. And my wife and I actually watched the U.S. Cornhole Championships, you know, the, <laughs> the backyard game. So we, we're big sports fans and we were desperate for. Well, Gary, and don't you remember, I mean, and Eric, there was like a phenomenal audience for the NFL draft. Yeah, because there hadn't there hadn't been any live sports, so yeah. that anything approximating something that was new all of a sudden spiked. But it, you know, the thing about the cornhole was, you know, it's not that difficult a sport. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> they were they were getting it in the anyway. They were very good. Let's put it that way. So, Eric, you mentioned, I want to follow up on something. I read a piece about Yes that talks to the business aspect of the network, obviously. And it seems like when the pandemic hit, Yes made a lot of smart decisions that seem to be paying off now, delaying advertising spots at the start of COVID, obviously re-airing classic games. Let me tell you, I can watch Aaron Boone hit that home run 100 times. <laughs> but anyway... And trying out technology and broadcast partnerships, developing digital content. Tell me more about your involvement in all of that, that, as you say, that new approach, you know, emphasis on digital and social more than ever before. Well, we, because we're sort of starting from scratch on a lot of these programming concepts, things I normally wouldn't be involved in, I was involved in. And as we're coming up with you know, programming concepts such as our Twitter takeovers, where we had Yankees classics that have been airing forever, and we put a new spin on them with people like John Flaherty and Michael Kay tweeting during the, the game, the Yankees classics, or we, we took games like Mariano's, believe it or not, one of his best starts as a Yankee. Ah, I'll remember that. Okay. I remember that. And the great we, reliever. We, yeah. 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 And we recorded interviews with him and some of his teammates and we embedded those interviews into the actual Yankees classic that we brought out of the, the mothballs. And I was able to lend a hand or lend a voice as it related to you. Okay, if we're thinking about doing this, what are some little tweaks we can make to provide maximum publicity value? Okay. Okay. Again, it, it's programming specifically that was going to air for the first time on Yes. And we're, we're literally starting from scratch. So let's involve Eric and let's figure out how we can maximize publicity for the, these types of shows. Yeah. Very and fun. we had, I'm, I'm sorry, we had, you may remember we had these, these digital interview shows called yes, we're here. Okay. It'd be a, a, a two screen thing. Yeah. And we, we did, I think we did like about 150 of those. Yes. We're here shows over the course of the first four or five months, whatever it was. And, you know, I was, from once every, you know, every once in a while, I would I would recommend certain guests and stuff like that, which I normally would not do because yeah. of the normal circumstances, there is a delineation of responsibility at the S network. But these were you know different times and called called for different different ways of doing things. This is like an incredibly competitive market, right? From a sports standpoint, or just more broadly, meaning New York and the for the region that you cover, what cuts through? You know, it, it, let's let's say in normal times, what re, obviously winning teams, right? You know, good teams or or compelling player personalities. W what cuts through in the New York sports market? 
Well, you, it, you, we laugh when you say winning, but winning. Okay. Yeah. And, and <laughs> the S network plays to our strengths and our biggest strength is we have the exclusive regional television rights for the New York Yankees. Okay. Who else has won 27, you know, world series championships. The Yankees are the premier, you know, pro sports brand in America. They have this winning legacy and tradition. They have all these Hall of Famers. They have the biggest iconic names in baseball. And that that counts for a lot. You know, the Yankees on Yes is premium content. We talk about premium content will survive and thrive during these ever-changing times and the advent of new technologies and new entertainment options, et cetera, et cetera. Premium content is still going to rise to the top. And the Yankees on Yes is premium content. And now we have the Nets. The Brooklyn Nets with with you know Harden and Durant and Kyrie Irving, they've they've taken over New York this winter. And one of the things we do at Yes is and and Chris will tell you this, we track you know who's in the back pages of the post of the news, the New York tabloids every day. Yeah, and sure. to us, to us, and you ask anybody, that's the biggest story in New York sports that particular day. And the new the Brooklyn Nets, who heading into this year had been on the back pages of the post of the news collectively i think once in three years they've been on the back pages of the post the news i would say probably like 15 times already in the wow. first yeah. first six or eight weeks yeah well you've, you've yeah. got some compelling personalities there on that team yeah. Yeah. i said it eric not you so <laughs> well I, you know this brings to mind too thinking about kind of the change in the last year operationally just kind of curious i, I i've heard and i don't know if this is true for the Yes Network when covering the the Nets or the Yankees, but that with some programs, the broadcast commentators, the sportscasters often are now not in the arena or not in the stadium uh, due to COVID precautions. They're actually covering the game via watching it on a on a TV screen, like like the rest of us, it almost brings back the thought that we used to hear about, you know, Ronald Reagan when when he was a sportscaster, actually doing it with feeds from the wire and and kind of making up everything, even sound effects. But operationally, how is this how has this changed how the actual event itself gets covered? No, it's 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 a great question, and everybody is facing the same dilemma. I mean, it's not just the Yankees on yes or the Nets on yes. It's the it's the Super Bowl. Yeah. It's the Daytona 500. Okay, it's you know any big network sporting event you see on the weekend, whether it's golf or NHL or the the you know whatever it is, all these productions are are impacted. And for those who may have watched our first Yankees spring training telecast yesterday, we had Michael Kay and David Cohn and Meredith Morakovitz. Michael's doing play-by-play. David is is our analyst, and Meredith is our our on-field reporter. Meredith actually was down in Tampa, at George Steinbrenner Field. Michael was at home up here on the New York area, and David was in on the Atlantic coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. So you had this three-headed monster, so to speak, wow. that had to find a way to coordinate and put everything together in a way that presented that the viewer wouldn't necessarily notice too much. And there were some time, there are, there are times last year during the regular season, during the postseason even, and then yesterday where yes, our not having our talent on site poses some challenges with camera angles and this and that, and they can only talk about what's on the screen in front of them. And you don't realize what being at the stadium and having the, the diamond 
Yeah, the full field of play. But folding out in front of you, how, you know, how that lends to being able to, you know, explain vividly the, the whole picture for the viewer. So you have the, the talent being dispersed all over the East Coast. And who who's the, the department that has to put that together? We have a broadcast operations department. Right. And mm-hmm. the work they are doing behind the scenes is is just you know monumental. They're setting up you know at home broadcast stations for David Cohn. You saw you saw Paul O'Neill last year from Studio Twenty One in his basement in Cincinnati doing games. <laughs> okay, and so what will happen this regular season is what you saw last regular season, where both home and away games for the Yankees, our talent will be at the stadium. Yeah. And then for the Brooklyn Nets, which obviously the NBA season is is taking place right now, it's the same concept. Whether it's a home game or away game, our talent, our game talent is based at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And that's what they did. It's a continuation of what we did last summer Mm -hmm. when the NBA was working out of the Orlando bubble. The bubble. So so that that does it does pose a lot of challenges. And you know, fortunately we have a, a tremendous broadcast operations and a tremendous production crew here at Yes, and they're able to, you know, work around all the the issues and, you know, step over the hurdles, so to speak. And and so ideally, what a fan is seeing on Yes, whether it's Nets or Yankees, is not much different from, say, 2019 or 2018. Yeah, yeah. Another operational question, but but broader, I mean, in in terms of almost any season, you know, so you cover these different sports. Are there unique challenges to covering Major League Baseball versus the NBA or WNBA? Or is the formula basically the same? There's the the basic formula or tenets are the same, but keep in mind that each each professional league has different broadcast guidelines. Mm Mm-hmm. As a result of the pandemic, each team has specific guidelines. As a result of the pandemic, each municipality, each city, and each state has distinct guidelines and rules that we have to follow. So, for example, what we can do, like an example would be Toronto. Toronto's NBA team, the Raptors, they're playing their home games in Tampa Bay this season. Wow. <laughs> and last, last year, last summer, the Blue Jays played their home games in Buffalo. Yeah because of the restrictions put forth by the certain Can Canadian it? governments. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it, it, it literally is, it just adds to the layer of the number of hoops you have to jump through. And what we're, what we have found is that it's, there's, there, there's really no uniform way of going about things these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting, very challenging. Eric, it's been a crazy year, as you say, for a lot of people. And and we, Mike and I have talked on this show with communicators about what they've learned. What What's your big takeaway as a communications leader from the last year? I would say, I don't know if it's the most important thing, but it is very, very important is that, you know, the the, the need to stay connected. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, as Chris will tell you, PR practitioners in certain industries and in certain markets, they are in a position to have a tremendous amount of face time with the media. Yeah. And I'm I'm fortunate enough to be able, being in New York, where a lot of media are are located, to have lunch with them, dinner with them, go to a game with them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a tremendous way of strengthening and you know maintaining relationships. And that's that's no longer an option. Right. So I'm going back to the days of picking up the phone. 
okay? <laughs> and, you know, or, or setting up Zoom calls or, you know, emailing more, whatever it is. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the need to continue to, to stay connected with your various target audiences. Right. Okay? And in my case, and, and as you know, communications, it's one of your biggest target audiences, the media. And, you know, we are communicators after all. Communications is our business. And therefore, we should be the best communicators. Yeah. We, we should be up to speed with best practices with everything. So that's not just communicating with the media. It's communicating with my boss, yes, colleagues, subordinates, and so forth, team partners. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I don't see, you know, the PR people from the Yankees or the Nets or NYCFC or Liberty the way I may have used to. So it's, it's more important for me just to maintain relationships with them you know, online as best that I can. And, and I would say also it's, it's ever since the advent of the internet communications has been 24 seven. Yeah. But it is, that's, that idea has really been heightened over the last year. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mentioned earlier in this interview about what transpired those two days in March when I was in Tampa. Literally, things were changing in thirty-minute increments. Right. Okay, and we're not talking hourly. We're not talking about two or three times an afternoon or morning. Literally, every time you refresh your Twitter feed, something new and dramatic is taking place. So that you know, the need to be on twenty-four-seven. I know that's the life of communicators to begin with, but that, that has really, there's no escaping that now. Yeah. Things yeah. are happening. Yeah. A consistent theme we hear from everyone. And while we're working from home, a lot of people, that, that kind of pressure during the pandemic is something that we need to think about is, is work from home. It may be a little more comfortable. You don't have to get on the subway, but you also have been required to be on just as much. And if and I, 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 I'm sorry, I would also add that, you know, the, whether it's messaging or the communications discipline in general is more nuanced than ever now. And what does that mean? It means in the back of my mind, at least, I always have to consider the pandemic mm -hmm. and whatever I'm, whatever messaging I, whatever messages I'm con conveying, I have to be very, very sensitive. Yeah. yeah it's a different that point. Yeah. This isn't 2018. This isn't 2019. For the last year, we've seen, you know, 500,000 people die of, you know, of, yeah. of COVID and it's impacted everybody, you know, to one degree or another. And therefore, whatever I do mm -hmm. within communications, whatever Yes does collectively as a company on air, digitally, from a business standpoint, we have to have that in the back of our minds. Great reminder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's been terrific to have you on, Eric. I've got one last question, almost in that in, in that same vein. I mean, you talked about how the the job, in some ways, had gone from back to the future, and now you're talking about how the internet has changed the game, and in, in a way that it will forever be changed. Right now, we're also seeing that evolving kind of a a growing activism among players within the various sports, particularly in the NBA and WNBA post the right after the, the murder of, of George Floyd. Do you feel more airtime needs to be given by sports networks to these kinds of issues as well? And that the sensitivity around race and relationships becomes also something that now is a sports issue? I, I would say that sports networks have been doing a very good job of keeping viewers aware of what is happening, both in the 
the country as a whole and also in, in particular markets mm -hmm. around, the, around the country. And I, I, I try to, I, I do a lot of reading so I know what other networks, both national and regional are doing around the country. And I, I would say that, you know, the networks are, are already doing quite a bit in terms of you know shining a light on the activism the the marches you know what have you and it, it takes the form of you know interview shows documentaries special programming just segments within existing programming for example we have a, sh a new digital sh interview show it's called appreciate you and it's a it's a term that the host michael grady uses talking talking to people hey appreciate you appreciate you and he his premiere episode from a few weeks ago features scoop jackson and mm -hmm. they spent a lot of time talking about the you know the situation that is taking place around the country that has taken place going back to you know last may and june issues possible solutions looking at these situations from different perspectives so so i i, I would say that that Networks, I think, are already doing a really good job of mm -hmm. providing pertinent programming mm -hmm. to the respective communities. And another thing that we do is, and this is not just yes, but everybody is, as I said, we, we shine a light on what our team partners are doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have 14 partners, Yankees, Nets, NYCFC, and Liberty. And each of those teams, each of those franchises has gone about it in their own unique way. And mm -hmm. we have a platform for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. we have a platform, both digital and linear, that can help them get the word out, that can amplify their message. Okay, so I think, I guess to answer your question, I think people are already doing that. Mm -hmm. And and you see it you continuing. Know, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. This this is this is an issue that you know, will not go away, or issues that will not go away. So, you know, networks will continue to, I believe they'll continue to, to, to cover it and partner with their, their team partners and so forth. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the crux. Here's my wish for you is that <laughs> your team partners, particularly the Yankees, will push through the finish line this year <laughs> and uh, help you with your ratings and your tune-in. That's that's my wish for you this year, and, and uh, among other things, is maybe to have a more more uh, less challenging year from your from your job for for all of us. And I really appreciate your insight into what's an important part of our lives. And we noticed this when it went away during the pandemic, right? The the release and the the enjoyment that sports give us and certainly the Yes Network does a great job in bringing that into our homes every day. So thank you, Eric. Well, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. listening to the crux and make sure to listen for our next episode follow us at the crux on facebook and on twitter and you can find our episodes on soundcloud and on our website thecruxpodcast.org